before I begin the sermon, I just want to tell you how proud I am of our church family and what a blessing it is to uh, pastor this church and to be able to go and represent you on the other side of the planet. I, I just love you and I appreciate being able to, uh, to serve you as your pastor and, and so proud of our church. And I know there's a good pride and there's a bad pride, but I think this is a good pride. It's not an arrogance, but, a, but just a spirit of gratefulness to God for you and for your missionary spirit. In fact, uh, coming up pretty soon, another one of our church members, Brother Kyle Miller, sitting over here. There he is. He's going to be departing from us for a couple of weeks. He's going to go actually to the same part of the world we just left. And so we're going to be praying for him. Kyle, we're going to be lifting you up. And praise God for you and your ministry. But I did. I just wanted to begin by saying thank you. Thank you, church family. And we love you. And I know our team of five that went out, we felt the prayers of God's people. I, I tell you, I just... Every moment, I just felt very peaceful. Uh, there was a time when we made it to this Hindu temple, and we walked onto the grounds, and our people were there, the people that we are trying to reach. There were going to be about 15,000 of them. And we walked on the campus of, that, of the, where this temple was, and they were about to have their procession and worshiping their gods and goddesses. And they encircled us immediately. Now, you got to understand, we, we look different, all right? We look really different from the people who are there. And when they, those men just gathered around my, us, I thought to myself, this is either a really good thing or this is not a good thing. And it was a wonderful thing. They were thrilled that we were there and we wanted to know about them and their culture and their religion. So, again, I just attributed that to God's protection and to your prayers. Many of you were praying and fasting for us. And, again, I am just so proud of our church that we are the people that God has chosen not only to help reach this city but also to reach those people who have no gospel witness whatsoever. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 4 through 6 this morning, and the title of the message is Grace and Peace. And I want to thank Brother Terry. Thank you so much for those songs that you sang. We began by singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that is precisely what we're going to look at today in our text. In fact, what I'm going to read to you in verse 4 is one of the most Trinitarian passages in all the Bible. It reveals to us just precisely who this God is uh, that we worship. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what He gives to us is grace and peace. And He is the very source of these blessings. So as we begin to study the book of Revelation, today, really verses 4 through 8 is the introduction of the entire book. John identifies himself. He says specifically the name of the churches to whom he writes. And so we're beginning the study. We're still in the very early infancy stages of it. But today I was so excited. I could not wait to get back and to share this message with you because it is so doctrinal. Uh, the text is so powerful and it's so revealing as to who God is. And he is the one who has saved us and he's called us and he motivates us to live for him and to go and to preach his gospel. Now in a few minutes... As you notice before you, we have the Lord's table before us, and we're going to have our deacons serve us at the end of the sermon. I'm going to call on those men, and they will give us the bread and give us the juice, and we will have an opportunity to acknowledge the Lord and to worship Him on this Lord's day. So I'm inviting you to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 4. And I want to ask you to stand, if you would, this morning. Go ahead and stand to your feet. I don't always do this, but there are some times I just want to stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read verses 4 through 6. And I promise you, this is one of the most powerful, descriptive, revealing texts that you'll ever read that describes our God. 
John, verse 4, the Apostle John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and our Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you. You may be seated. As John pens these words in AD 95, the Christian community is under much attack. They are under much hostility from a man by the name of Domitian. Domitian is the Roman emperor at the time, and he has very little tolerance for people of any kind of faith that is against his faith, which is emperor worship and worshiping the gods. But here God has this small band of believers, and they are... They start out as a little ember, and then they begin to grow into a fire. And before we know it, at the end of the book of Acts, it has become this mighty conflagration of God's people who are taking over what is known as Asia Minor, and literally it will go to the ends of the earth. And John sits down, and he, he writes to the churches. And he says there in verse 4, he says, I am John, and I'm writing to the seven churches who are in Asia. And then he begins this message that he reveals who God is. I tell you today, this is going to be... Such a fun time because we're going to learn more about our great God. And then as an act of worship, we're going to stand before God, sing praise, and then we're going to partake of the elements. So let me begin, number one, with the address. John gives his address to the seven churches there in Asia Minor, and he tells them. He says, I bring to you a word of charis, which is grace, and a word of irene in Greek, which means peace. And John says to the seven churches, and on the screen here I have a picture of those seven churches in Asia Minor, just south of the Black Sea there, north of course of there would be modern day Russia, but what you're looking at is modern day Turkey. And this is a postal route, this is a route that they took to deliver the mail to the various cities. And you'll notice that Ephesus is the first church there on that postal route. And John, remember was the pastor of that church at Ephesus for 30 years. He's very familiar with that church and also these seven churches there in Asia Minor. Now, there are many other churches in the Christian faith in A.D. 95, but John singled out these seven because the Spirit of God says, John, write this letter and hand deliver it or have it delivered to these seven churches who are scattered abroad through Asia Minor. One writer puts it this way when he describes these churches. He says, they were typical churches. They were typical assemblies with regard to their histories and their spiritual states. These adequately represented the various spiritual situations of the surrounding churches at that time. Then too, they were probably the ones with which John enjoyed the closest relationship. End of quote. And so you see John, a real man, writing at a real time to real churches. It is full of historicity. It is, a, it is a message of veracity and truthfulness. We can pinpoint the precise location. In fact, I was there about 10 years ago. I actually went to the city of Ephesus. It is the most preserved city of antiquity. 
And I could just envision in my mind's eye, there that church is gathered and John is writing to them this letter and they're going to take it. The pastor's going to stand, he's going to read it, and it's going to change their lives. And so here's this address. And first of all, he says, I want to give you a word of grace and a word of peace. Is that not a good word? A word about God's grace. God's unmerited favor towards us, His children. His grace, His favor that flows abundantly from this triune God. This God of grace who has spared us a life of misery and given us a life of joy. This God who has given us a sense of peace. And I love this word peace. It, in my mind's eye, I see peace as this inner tranquility and this confident assurance that everything is going to be okay. And you know, only the Christian faith offers these commodities, these veritable blessings of God pouring out grace upon us, and a result of that would be His peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and I love this, he says, Having been justified by faith, we have this peace with God. We have this irene, we have this inner tranquility that everything is going to be okay. How do we have this? Is it on our own merit? Have we earned this? No, nope. it is through God and our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And here's the joy, here's the peace. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I read a book not long ago. It was a book by Dr. Larry Crabb, and I love the title of this book. And it really encapsulates grace and peace. The title of the book is, The Pressure is Off. The Pressure is Off. And when you think about it, we as followers of Christ, when we know Him and we're walking with Him, He showers us with His grace. He gives to us this inner tranquility and John Writing in A.D. 95, when the world is in turmoil and Domitian is seeking out Christians to kill them, he can say in the midst of that, in that very milieu of suffering, in that epoch of time where it seems like the church is just going to be suffering more and more, he says, no, look at it this way. Our great God, he is on the throne, and he has given you grace and peace to not only make it, but also to thrive. And God reminded me of something that I often forget. That that same grace and peace that God gave to us initially in salvation is the same grace and peace that He gives us today to sustain us. Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you glad for that, that God does not abandon us? He doesn't leave us on our own, but He gives us grace, He gives us peace, and John reminds us of that. Now let me get into the source of the blessing or the source of the, of the grace and the peace, and this would be none other than the triune God. Now notice the way... John describes our great God. If you look in verse 4, there is a preposition, and it is the word from. It's the Greek word apo. And apo means from, or what is the source of. And in verse 4, it says, grace and peace to you from him. And that him is referring to God the Father. And then it says, and from the seven spirits, a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, it says, and from Jesus Christ. And that is very important. Three times John has given us the very source of these veritable commodities, these blessings of the Christian life. And he says this comes from none other than our Almighty God. And first of all, he describes God the Father when he says, and he is the one who is, who was, and is 
to come. It made me think of Genesis 1-1 where it says, And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Somebody asked me not long ago, well, who created God? I said, nobody. He's always been. He is the eternal, everlasting, omnipotent God. He was, He is, He will forever be. He is above time. He created time. He is above space. He created space. He is the one true, eternal, awesome God, and He loves you. And he loves me, and he gives me grace, and he gives you grace, and he gives us peace. Listen to this word I have for you today. If you're struggling from past failures and mistakes that you have made, God was. If you're worried about today, and you're worried about the job situation, or you're worried about your marriage, or you're worried about your finances, God is. Or if you're concerned about the future and you do not know what holds the future holds and you don't know what the perplexities and the things that are facing you, listen, God will be. He was, He is, He will forever be. This is a great God. He is the one true God. And to know Him, you can't help but want to share Him with a country that does not know Him. You can't help but want to share Him with your neighbors or your relatives who do not know Him. So He describes Him as the great God, the Father who was, is, and forever will be. Number two, he says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> I remember one time this guy came up to me, and he was, he was obviously very unbiblical, and he was representing some cult, and he began to try to convince me that God had seven holy spirits. And I was like, sir, what in the world are you talking about? He says, in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it says, God has seven holy spirits. And I said, that's not, that's not what John is saying. Nowhere in the Bible will you read that there are seven holy spirits. And John, remember, presupposes that you have a thorough working knowledge of the Old Testament. And what John is doing here is he is referring to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4 refers to the seven golden lampstands. And he uses the number seven like three different times because it is the number of completion. It is the number of plentitude. It is the number of power. And for seven churches, the Holy Spirit of God is enough and he's powerful for all seven churches. So there's not seven Holy Spirits, there's one Holy Spirit, and yet John uses this word seven because, again, it is the number of completion. And remember this word, in Zechariah chapter 4, when Zechariah is prophesying, he sees this vision, and he mentions the seven, he mentions the lampstand with the seven golden lamps, uh, uh, lamps on the lampstand, and he gives us this word. Remember this? Not by power, not by might, but by my what? Spirit, says the Lord. And so you got to remember that John presupposes that you have a thorough working knowledge of the Old Testament. And, and many times we don't, I understand that, so I'm going to try to help you interpret Revelation in light, of, in light of the Old Testament. And so he says, and from the Holy Spirit, he's the one that gives you a grace, and he also he gives you peace. And I tell you, I experienced this. Uh, last week, I, I just, I, it was so palpable the presence of the power of the Spirit of God as we were walking in these villages and we were going from house to house and we would walk into a home and there would be all these gods and these goddesses. And you say, well, Brother Danny, were you intimidated? Were you worried? Not at all. 
I was not fearful. I was not intimidated. We would walk in those rooms and walk into those, those buildings, and we would say, we are here to share with you that there is one true living God, and He loves you very much, and we begin to share with them this message, this message of grace and this message of peace. And then John says, grace to you and peace to you, not only from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, but also God the Son. Now, why does John wait to say the Son? The reason he waits is because this catapults him now into the remainder of the book of Revelation, which is an unveiling. It is a revealing of whom? It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. So very poetically and very purposefully and very powerfully, he puts the Son last because now he's about to give this threefold description of the Son of God. Oh, I couldn't wait to share this with you. All right, number one. He describes Jesus as the faithful martus. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And when I read that, I thought about John chapter 5, where Jesus, he says these words about his relationship to the Father. He said, I can do nothing of myself, but as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, watch this, but I seek the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus was a faithful witness. He bore witness to the truth of who he was and to the truth of who the the heavenly Father was. And so he came and he bore witness faithfully and it cost him. And I'm telling you, it cost in the first century and it's going to cost us in the 21st century when we stand for God and we're faithful witnesses for him. It's going to be costly. And yet John says, he is the one who gives you grace and peace. He is the one that we are writing about. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. You know, as I was bragging on you a minute ago, I have to, I have to say another word of blessing about our church. We, we, have some, we have some really amazing people in our church. I, I got an email just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, it was two weeks ago uh, today. It was from one of our students and uh, he and another student had just left a Bible study uh, uh, from our church. And on their way home, they spotted this lady on a bridge here in Austin. She was about to take her life. And Logan writes me this email, and he goes, Pastor, I want to tell you what happened. And I, I, was, I was dumbfounded. I was just like, what in the world? I can't imagine being 17, 18 years of age and driving down the road here in Austin, Texas, and you see a lady on the precipice of a bridge about to jump out and take her life. These two young pull over, and they, with some other people, walk up to this lady, and they begin to talk to her. And I want to read you what he said. Here's what he said in, my, in his email. She said she was so tired of living the way she was, and she told me she was just lost in deep desperation. So I was able to share a quick version of my testimony. Hallelujah. That is a witness. I was able to share a quick version of my testimony, and I explained to her that there was hope. If she repented and put her trust in Jesus, Jesus Christ would save her. He could save her from her addiction as well. We told them about Great Hills Baptist Church and that they were welcome to come and told them when our service was. Now, I want to tell you something. As a pastor, it just doesn't get any better than that. I'm reading this, and sure enough, they, they basically talked her off the ledge. She came away from that, didn't take her life, and now some of our other church members are reaching out to this lady trying to help her. That's what it means to me to be a faithful witness, just like, just like our Lord. Way to go, young people. Way to go. <clears throat> so in his threefold description of 
the Son. First of all, he says he is the faithful martus. And by the way, martus is where we get the English word martyr. And that is the very Greek word that John uses here when he calls him a faithful witness. Number two, he says he is the prototakos. He is the prototakos from the dead, the firstborn. Colossians 1.15, he is the prototakos from creation. Which means this is a word of preeminence. This is a word not so much with time as it is kind. He is the firstborn, the preeminent one. He is the Lord Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary, but he existed way before. He's always existed as the second person of the Godhead. He was placed into Mary's womb, and he was born of the Virgin Mary. And then he lived his life. He was buried. And on the third day, he arose from the dead. Now watch this. John did not say he is the only person to ever rise from the dead. We read in the Old Testament. We read in the New Testament. We read in the New Testament where Jesus literally raised people from the dead. So what is John talking about? When he, when he prefaces it with prototakos, with this word of preeminence, here's what he means. He has died and he will never die again. He is risen. He is reigning. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author of the church. He is the author of your salvation. He is the one that's given you grace. He is the one that's given you peace. He is the one that's going to sustain you through your trials of life. He is the firstborn from the dead. And I got to thinking about that. I mean, what, what, what does that say to you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, that we follow someone who died but arose from the dead never to die again? Here's what this means. It means that when you believe in him, you die and you will never die again. Your loved ones who die in the Lord, you will see them again. When I was writing this sermon a couple of weeks ago, I, I was... I was just thinking, I, for some reason, I just was thinking about my family and those who have gone before me. I don't know if going on a mission trip kind of gives you these thoughts of, of mortality and death or whatever, but I was. I was thinking seriously about it, hoping I would come back and preach again. But, but if you don't, then what would happen? What would happen to me? Well, I know exactly what would happen to me. I'd see my great-grandfather. I would see my loved ones who have gone before me. Have you ever been to a funeral and the preacher or somebody say something about their loved ones that they lost? I don't like that word because lost has the connotation that you've lost something and you can't find it. Listen, when our loved ones go and be with Jesus, we ain't lost them. We know exactly where they are and we're going to be with them one day. Why? Because of the prototakos. He is the first one, the firstborn. He is also the one who died, arose from the dead, never to die again. I was talking to one of my family members recently, and, and it was a tough conversation, and he was sharing with me, and, and I was trying to share with him, and, and there's this sense of bitterness, there's this sense of hurt in his life. And I just began to share this story with him, and I'm going to share this story with you, and then I'm going to identify who this person is, because many of you know who this person is, and many of you do not know who this person is, because many of you are new members here at Great Hills. He was converted to Christ in the Navy in World War II. He accepted Christ, and when he did, he was ostracized, and he was separated from his family. His family did not embrace his decision, but he, he embraced Christ anyhow. When he got out of the Navy, he began to serve as a, as a pastor, and God called him to preach, and he served in segregated Mississippi. And there in Mississippi, he was, he was persecuted for his faith because he believed that a person's color of their skin should not separate them from the blessings of this life. And so he took a stand 
and he was persecuted for him. Some of y'all are knowing who this person is. This person went on to pastor, and in his third pastorate, the most unthinkable thing happened to him. As he's driving down the road with his family, his pregnant wife, his daughter, and his son are all killed in an automobile accident, and he makes it out alive, though he is critically wounded. And I was sharing this story with my loved one, and the point of the story was this. And you know what this man does? He goes on and serves God anyhow. He doesn't get bitter. He doesn't, he doesn't turn his back on God. He keeps serving the Lord because he has this blessed assurance that one great and glorious day he will see his loved ones again. Does anybody know who I'm talking about here today? Amen. That would be preacher. That is a true story of our pastor emeritus who's sitting right here on the second row, who sits there on the second row every Sunday very faithfully with his wife. And I, and I thought about your story, preacher, and I shared this with my loved one, and I thought, how could you say that? How could you have such confident assurance? And it is because our faith is based in a historical person. It is based in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives... All fear is gone because I know, I know, I know who holds the future. Jesus Christ, he lives. He lives, and so will we, and so will our loved ones. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The firstborn from the dead. And notice with me number three, he, John calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. And I love this description, this threefold description of Christ. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. In John 19, 16, he has a name emblazoned on his thigh and on his robe, and it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, now think about this. As Domitian reigns in AD 95, as the church is being persecuted then, John says there is a ruler, there is a king above all rulers, above all kings, and his name is Jesus. And I got to thinking about that this week, and I thought about all the rulers and the presidents and the prime ministers who ever lived. Their names and their reigns will appear on the radar of history just momentarily, and then they, they're off the blip of the radar. But there's one, John says, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And Paul says, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. Now, having said that, John says, I am addressing you, and I am addressing you with this message of hope and grace and peace. And it is rooted, it is grounded in none other than our triune God. Father, who was, is, forever will be. The Holy Spirit, plentitude, and powerful He is. And the Son, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And then He says, and here is what He gives you. Listen to this, church. He gives us, in verse 4, he gives us salvation, and he gives us significance. Thank you, Brother Terry, again for singing these songs. It says, to him who agape does. Literally, that's in a present tense. That's a present tense verb. To him who loves us, and aorist tense, past tense, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, is there any mystery is there any ambiguity as to who this person is? There is none. Because they know exactly who John is talking about. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he says he gives us salvation. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we are cleansed. What can wash away my sin? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. Is the fountain that makes me white as snow. What other fountain do I know? I don't know anything. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's what John is saying. He's saying to him who loved us, and he washed us, and he cleansed us. And that's what gives me authority. That's what gives me the ability to walk up to someone and say, let me tell you something. Whether you're worshiping false idols and false gods in Austin or in India, it doesn't matter. There is a one true God who loves you. He desires you. He wants to cleanse you from your sins. And it is none other than Jesus Christ. And John is saying, it is from Him that you have received this grace and this peace. And notice, not only does He give us salvation, but He gives us significance in verse 6. And He has made us kings. Some translations have, and He has given us a kingdom in which we are priests to His God and Father. You see the significance there? God has saved us with a purpose. We are his priests, which means we intercede for God to people, and we intercede to people for God. We are a kingdom of priests, and our role, our job, is to introduce as many people as we can to this awesome God that he is. You know, Chuck Colson, I heard him speak before he died a number of years ago, and he was sharing a story about a very famous, successful businessman and Chuck Colson said, yes, this man earned $500 million. He earned half a billion dollars during his time as a CEO of a very profitable company in our country. The man had a, a, a massive heart surgery, and when he went and had his successful heart surgery, he came out of it very well. And somebody asked him a question. They said, hey, did you have any epiphanies? Did you have any revelations? I mean, you were under surgery a long time, and I've heard about these near-death experiences. Did you see any white lights? Did you see any flames below? I mean, what, what happened? Do you have a word for us? He said, yes. He said, yes, I have a word for you, and here's the word. I am going to spend more money on me than I have ever spent in my life. I will never let a drop of wine tastes my lips that does not cost at least $100 a bottle. I'm going to live it up for the remainder of my days. And I thought, isn't that sad? Isn't that heartbreaking? God has called us to salvation in Christ, to be a kingdom of priests, to introduce as many people as we can to the Lord. And yet many times we think this life is all about us. And it's all about gathering. It's all about accumulating. I tell you guys, the older I get, the more I'm concerned about not raising my standard of living, but raising my standard of giving. And being able to go and being able to serve and being able to reach as many people as I can. If I believe this book, if I believe that John is speaking the truth, that there is a one true eternal God, and he has revealed himself in his son, he has given us this book, the Holy Bible, it will radically change your life. And then he does this, he gives the declaration or the benediction and this is what he says. And now to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's John's first message to the church. And it's so important that we go through chapters 1, 2, and 3 before we ever get to chapter 4. Because you've got to keep in mind this entire book is all about a person. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so secondly is the acknowledgement. I guess at this point in my sermon I ask the question, so what? What does this say to you? What does this mean to you? Does it mean anything to you? He has given us this doxology of praise to him, to Jesus Christ. 
And now what we get to do is we get to acknowledge Him with the way we live our lives and especially as we come to the Lord's Supper. I appreciate so much the way the Lord organizes and orchestrates things. I'm just not smart enough to have the Lord's Supper on the day that I preach about the blood of Jesus in verse 5. But it is the blood of Jesus that washes us, that cleanses us from our sins. I don't know, I had another song in my mind and I was singing it in my, in my office and, I, and it's, um, it, it's, a, it's a very popular song and I know many of you have heard it. I've never heard Alan Jackson sing a song. Well, yes, I have. If I had money, tell you what I'd do. Go downtown, buy a Ford truck or two, crazy about a Ford truck. He's Alan Jackson. He's the one that sings that, that, that country music. And so I was looking for this song, and it says, here's Alan Jackson singing this song. And I looked on my computer screen, and he was singing these words. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. Oh, be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Are you washed? Son, I started having a Holy Ghost revival right there in my, in my office, you know. Because I was like, woo! And then he just went right into uh, another song. I can't remember what it was, but it was great too. And I was just like, man, this is, this is incredible. He is singing about the very divine agency by which my salvation was purchased, the blood of Jesus Christ. And again, I just started weeping. And I, I don't know if Kathy could hear me out in her office, but I was kind of hooting, hollering a little bit. And I was just weeping because I was thinking about my loved ones who have gone before me. And I was thinking about how one great, grand, and amazing, glorious day that all the saints of God who have been washed and cleansed through His blood, we will gather with Him in heaven forever. We will worship Him. We will have no more cancer, no more heart attacks, no more Alzheimer's, no more dementia, no more sickness, no more pain, and forever we will live with our great God. I tell you, it changes you. It gives you a great hope. <clears throat> So i got to ask you today, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you laid aside your stained garments and exchanged them for a robe of righteousness? If you have, then we're going to take the next 10 minutes or so and we're just going to celebrate. We're going to give you a piece of bread and we're going to ask you to take that bread in a moment. And as you ingest it and you eat this bread and digest it in your body, I want you to be thinking about the body that was broken for you so that you could live eternally. And then a moment, we'll take the blood, the, we'll take the cup that represents the blood that is a beautiful metaphor, whether it's wine or whether it's grape juice. This is a Baptist church, by the way. It will be, gra it will be grape juice, okay? At least I check, unless our deacons pulled something on me that I didn't, I didn't know about. But anyhow, we're going to take whatever it is. It's going to be red, all right? And we're going to take it and ingest it and let our bodies digest it. And as we do, we're going to be thinking about, oh, the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me and gives me grace and gives me peace. And here's what we're going to do. Right after that, I want to come back before you and I'm going to ask you, if you've never received Christ, if you've never been washed in His blood, if you've never been cleansed, we're going to give you that opportunity to do that this very day. And so for those who are believers in Christ, who are in fellowship with Him, 
I'm going to invite you now to partake of the Lord's Supper. So let me pray as our deacons come, as I'm praying, and they're going to get these elements prepared. They'll give you the bread first, and then we will share a scripture. They'll give you the juice, share another scripture. We'll go to our invitation. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is life to those who read it. It is health to our flesh. Thank you, God, for this message, this apocalypse, this unveiling of Jesus Christ, who he really is, and what he really does, and one day what he really will do. And Lord, we are honored, we are so incredibly honored to live in the greatest country in the world, to have more freedom than any citizen has ever had. We have this great freedom to worship you. And so, Lord, we come today, not flippantly, but we come very devotedly, very seriously. Lord, we want to observe these elements in a very sacred way as we honor your death on the cross, your blood that was shed for us. And we just want to worship you. We want to acknowledge who you are and what you have done for us. And we want to give you praise and thanksgiving for it, for you are so worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.